have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and have earnestly, fervently prayed. But you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Would you walk with the Lord in the light of his word and have peace and contentment always? You must do his sweet will to be free from all ill on the altar your all you must lay is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid your heart does the spirit control you can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul. Who can tell all the love he will send from above and how happy our hearts will be made. Of the fellowship sweet we shall share at his feet when our all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the spirit control. You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield him your body and soul as you yield him your body and soul well we're still in our bible truth series we're dealing with the king and um We've been recognizing and noting, of course, uh, where the king's coming from, the line of the king. He said it began with Eve, continued with Shem, and then about 400 years later, uh, God singled out a man by the name of Abraham. And from Abraham, we noted Isaac, and then, of course, it went to Jacob, his son, and who was next in line. And from there, of Jacob's sons, Judah was chosen. And now we continue the line of the king. Now we said that Judah uh, was not really the model brother. Judah doesn't appear to be a model dad. We said that Judah wasn't a model Christian even. Uh, it would seem that at some point Judah repented or got some things straight with God. But either way, we see grace in, at work here. No doubt about it, as you look at the life of Judah and then you consider what God did with him and how he used him in the line of the king, it's uh, just a, literally a, 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 an issue of grace, and we thank God for that grace. Now, 475 years has passed, and we arrive at David. 
who was of the tribe of Judah. And so David, we're going to see, is, is Israel's second king. He's also the youngest son of Jesse, who's from Bethlehem. We're going to note something here that uh, is somewhat of a, in some cases, people would say a contradiction. And so we're going to have a word of prayer. We're going to look at the life of David very quickly. And then we're going to, if we have time, make some application along the way tonight. So let's go ahead and have this word of prayer. And then we're going to jump in to this passage. We're going to be in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 16. And you'll be able to turn there as soon as we're done praying. Father, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you just bless our time together in the word of God. We need you tonight. We ask, Lord, that it would be profitable. Lord, we know that your word will not return void. However, we also know that the devil can come along and steal the seed of the word of God. And so, Lord, we ask that you would put a hedge of protection about us. Now, Father, fill me with your spirit. Allow me to be your mouthpiece tonight. May you just be with the people of God as well and anoint their ears that they may hear with spiritual ears. And, Lord, may our hearts be encouraged tonight. May we, Father, be more equipped and better readied, Father, for the work ahead. Lord, help us to stand strong for you in this world in which we live. We love you. We thank you. We'll give you the glory and the honor for what will be accomplished today. Walk these aisles. Do a work in our hearts and in our lives. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Samuel 16. Let's turn to verse 6 to begin with. <clears throat> now, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, we're told that Samuel met with Jesse and he met with his sons in order to anoint the next king of Israel. And so we're going to note that right off the bat. And the reason we're going to do that is because it's going to bring up what is often viewed as a contradiction in the end. Now, let's look what it says here in 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. It says, And it came to pass, when they were come, that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said unto Samuel, Look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, of course, our preacher Sunday night did a good job, a great job of, 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 of making an application here and encouraging us in this uh, respect from that particular passage. Now, we go on in verse 8. Then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Then Jesse made Shema pass by, and he said, Neither hath the Lord chosen this. Again, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel. And Samuel said unto Jesse, The Lord hath not chosen these. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, There remaineth yet the youngest. Behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for will not sit down till he come hither. Now from this particular passage... We learned that David had seven brothers, making it clear then that Jesse had eight sons. At least that's what it appeared, right? I mean, there it is in the passage. We note here in the passage, Jesse made seven of his sons to pass before Samuel, and yet there was still one that remained, and his name was David, and he was out taking care of the sheep. And Samuel says, I'm not going to even sit down, I'm going to wait. You bring old uh, David in because none of these seven sons that have passed by me are the one that God would have anointed. Obviously, it's the eighth. Then in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12, we are specifically told that Jesse had eight sons. 
The Bible says in 1 Samuel 17, 12, Now David was the son of that Ephrathite of Bethlehem, Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. The man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. Notice, and he had eight sons. So now in two particular passages here in the book of 1 Samuel, we recognize and see that David is the eighth son of Jesse. He has seven brothers and he is the eighth. So scripture plainly states that Jesse had eight sons, David being the youngest. But interestingly enough, turn if you would to 1 Chronicles chapter 2. In 1 Chronicles, this account of David's family lists only seven sons of Jesse. Look what it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. And Jesse begat first his firstborn, Eliab, and Abinadab the second, and Shema the third, and Nethaniel the fourth, and Redai the fifth, and Ozem the sixth, David the seventh, whose sisters were Zariah and Abigail, and the sons of Zariah, Abishai, and Joab, and Asahel three. Now, I want you to notice again in the passage, it says here that David was the seventh. So did David have six or seven brothers? Was he the seventh or was he the eighth son of Jesse? Good question, right? Skeptics point to this particular discrepancy in the number of brothers that David had as proof that the Bible has errors and that it has contradictions. Therefore, they'll say, well, you can't trust the Bible. It's unreliable. Their argument, however, it kind of neglects the reality of a very true biblical principle. See, biblical genealogies often don't include every ancestor in a family tree or family line. For example, when a child would die without leaving any children, he or she was often omitted from the record. So the passage in the book of 1 Samuel, as we also note, is written much earlier in David's life. While the genealogy in 1 Chronicles was recorded much later in his life. So the one recording the genealogy was primarily concerned about preserving Israel's family records for verifying tribal identity or possibly even inheritance rights. So therefore, as we look at the passage and as we compare the two, it's most likely that one of David's seven brothers then must have died at a young age before having children. Without producing any heirs, as you will. And as a result, he's not given a place in the genealogy in 1 Chronicles. One takes place early on, one takes place later on. And as a result of this child obviously passing before there's any children involved, he's not included in the genealogy. Now again, someone would say, well, that's, that's an easy way to get around that. Well, listen, I'm, I'm of the persuasion that God's word is still God's word. And I don't believe there are contradictions. 
Now, if you want to approach the Bible from the standpoint of it has contradictions, well, this is a good place to start. You find yourself a contradiction if you choose. And if you just say, well, on the surface, look what it appears to be. But there are rules and there are certain principles that were followed by these that wrote genealogies. And one of them was we often do not include people that don't have offspring because it serves no purpose going forward. Mystery solved in my mind. Sadly, too many are searching for reasons why the Bible isn't the Word of God. See, you know, when you consider evolution, you know, you look at evolution, the bulk of people are seeking evidence that would support it. Most people don't go toward and look at uh, evolution and say, let me pick it apart. Let me find out why it's not true. Most people look at it and go, let's, let's find evidence that oh, the evidence points to it. Let's look for evidence that supports it. But when it comes to God and His Word, the majority seek to discredit it. The answer for that is found in Psalms 2, or should I say, we, 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 or the, the, the fact of that is found in Psalms chapter 2, verse 1 through 3. The Bible says, Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. Well, this old flesh wants, its own, wants to be its own God, doesn't it? Who in the world wants a God? Who wants to have to abide by the principles and the criteria of the, the Word of God? Who wants to have a master telling them what to do? This flesh says, I want to do what I want to do. And that's exactly what Psalm chapter 2 is saying. Let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. But the truth is, is, if you're not ruled by the God in heaven, then you are being ruled by the devil, the father of all lies. That's all there is to it. We're going to be pawns in the devil's scheme of things, or we're going to be servants to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's up to us. So, let's get back to David then. David's story, of course, is one that's been rehearsed over and over and over again throughout history. Let's face it, his confrontation with the giant of Gath has been the, the topic of conversation in Sunday school classrooms, junior churches, and church services for the last 3,000 years. I mean, it's been spoken of, it's been talked about, it's been, you know, just literally just over and over again addressed and shared. And understandably so. So what about David? Well, David was a valiant warrior. He was a valiant warrior. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. Look at verse 5. After uh, defeating Goliath, of course, he goes into service for the king. And man, I mean to tell you, he is, uh, <clears throat> he's taking orders and he's doing what he's told. And the Bible says, and David went out whithersoever Saul sent him. Verse, verse 5, chapter 18, verse 5. And behaved himself wisely. Now, our understanding is, is that David's a fairly young man here. You know, and, and, and you know, we we for years have continued to give a pass to our young people. 
You know, they can act like a bunch of fools because they're young. But the Bible says David behaved himself wisely. Listen, I, 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 don't, I don't think any Christian young man ought to act like a fool. You know, I'm not saying that he can't have a good time. I'm not saying she can't just have some fun and act crazy and wild. I mean, listen, I don't think as you get older, you ought to stop being a kid. I think we're kids at heart anyway. But I'm just saying there needs to be an element of sobriety in our mind. There needs to be seriousness that also accompanies the young and the youthful. The idea that they can just go out and live their life and sow their wild oats, and that's normal, that's the way it is, that is not biblical, nor is it Christ-like. You don't get a pass to go out and sin your first five years after graduating high school. It's not how it works. In this particular case, and again, I'm, I'm not, you know that we give a lot of leeway to our teenagers. I mean, honestly, I, I, would, uh, I understand they're going to make mistakes. I, I, we're making them. So they're going to make a few. But by the same token, they need to understand how important it is that as a believer, that they, like David, young men, young ladies, behave themselves wisely. Notice what it goes on to say as well. And Saul set him over the men of war. And he was accepted in the sight of all the people. And also in the sight of Saul's servants. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? That's really amazing. It came to pass as they came, when David was returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all cities of Israel, singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tabrets and joy, with joy and with instruments of music. And the women answered one another as they played and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. That didn't go over good. Old Saul, he didn't like that. It's funny, and it's, it, to me it's kind of interesting. Here's Saul, right? The Goliath is coming out, and he's intimidating the armies of Israel. He's blaspheming the God of Israel. He's a head taller than the rest of the men. So the Bible teaches us. And yet, David steps up to the plate and kills Goliath. And now David comes back from the war, and the ladies say, Saul's killed his thousands and David his ten thousands and Saul's upset. It's interesting, isn't it? Seems to me that David earned it. While the king sat back and watched a young man go out there and risk his life for his nation, a man that was a man of war, a man that was larger in stature than all the others, a man whose armor could not even fit little David. Now again, David probably wasn't little, little, but he wasn't big, I guarantee you that. And here he is now jealous of him because the truth is being shared. David, however, is a mighty man of valor. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 18. The Bible says, Then answered one of the servants and said, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse the Bethlehemite that is cunning in playing, and a mighty man of a mighty valiant man, and a man of war, and prudent in matters, and comely person, and the Lord is with him, a mighty man. Valiant man and a man of war is how he's described by this servant of King Saul. David, a valiant warrior. A valiant warrior. There is not a man in the room 
who would want to stand before David and call him out. Not one of us. Not five of us. Probably not ten of us together. He was a valiant warrior. Number two, he was a popular psalmist. A popular psalmist. 2 Samuel 23.1 Now these be the last words of David. Psalm, excuse me, 2 Samuel 23.1 Now these be the last words of David. David the son of Jesse said, And the man who was raised up on high, the anointed of God, the God of Jacob, and the sweet psalmist of Israel said, There he is, boy, referred to as the sweet psalmist of Israel. It was a very popular psalmist. You say, how popular? Well, he's specifically noted to have authored 73 of the psalms. In addition to those 73, he's mentioned as the author of two of the psalms by writers in the New Testament, which brings our total to 75, which is 50% of the psalms. There's 150, 75, leave 75, that's 50% of them. That means David is personally responsible for half of the psalms. That's, that's pretty good. He's a popular psalmist. He's a songwriting fool. Number three, he's a skillful magician. Uh, not magician. <laughs> Musician. <laughs> he might have been good at that too. He kind of probably pulled a rabbit out of his hat. I don't know. Well, out of his helmet. <clears throat> 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 23. A skillful musician. It says, And it came to pass, when the evil spirit from God was upon Saul, that David took a harp and played with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the evil spirit departed from him. We know that Saul, of course, uh, was having some real difficulties. And so, David is brought in, and of course he plays, and the spirit of Saul is, is just encouraged and refreshed. Now, I'll be honest with you. i, I got to imagine that David was an extremely talented uh, a man, obviously. And that he had a passion for playing the harp. So he was talented, and he was passionate about that old harp. But can I tell you that I'm not convinced that his talent alone would have carried him into the presence of the king. I honestly believe that it ha if it hadn't been for his discipline in his study and in his practice, he would have never found his way into the throne room. Now, I'm about fed up with people who always want to use the excuse that I don't have any talent, I don't have any ability, I don't have anything to give God. No, my friend, why don't you work at it? Well, I tried. How long? A week or two? I'm just telling you, we give a lot of excuses why we can't do things for God. And, and, and David, well, David was obviously talented. He was such a good player of the harp. He had to just be a natural. Yeah, when it comes that, if it was that natural, I'd do it too. How do you know that he didn't work his tail off? 
How do you know that he wasn't on that back there in the wilderness taking care of those sheep? I wonder how many hours he spent practicing the heart. I wonder how much time he spent working on certain numbers. I wonder how many times he, he, he saw his fingers bleed or how many times he had to replace those strings. I just wonder how much work he put into it. But my friend, you don't get to the position he did by just simply being talented. You have to be disciplined and work at it. Number four, he was a tremendous king. A tremendous king. With all his faults, David still stands as the king by which all others are compared. We can read certain passages. For instance, 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 3. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, yet not like David his father. He did according to all as Joash his father did. 2 Kings 16, 2, 20 years old was Ahaz when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem and did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord his God as David his father. In 2 Chronicles 28, 1, the Bible says Ahaz was 20 years old, and here he is in Chronicles now from God's standpoint. He began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord like David his father. Again, two different views. If you look at Kings, it's from basically man's view. You look at Chronicles, it's from God's view. God looks at David and says, he is my standard. From the earth's standpoint, he's still the standard. David is the standard for Kings. When one thinks about David, he or she cannot help but think, David the shepherd boy, David the giant killer, David the king. And what a king he was. Finally, number five, he was a humble servant of God. A humble servant of God. Saul the king had grown very impatient with Samuel. And as a result, he couldn't wait any longer. The battle seemed to be at hand. And so, King Saul chose to sacrifice a burnt offering on his own. Now, it wasn't his place to do that. And as a result, he foolishly intruded into the priest's office. And of course, that act of arrogance and disregard for God's authority prompted God to remove his hand from Saul's reign. It would be David that God would ultimately anoint. In 1 Samuel 13, 14. Look there if you would. 1 Samuel 13, 14. Again, a humble servant of God, this David. The Bible says in 1 Samuel 13, 14, But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people, because thou hast not kept that which the Lord commanded thee. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was an extremely humble man. He had to be to endure Calvary. He had to be to put up with his creation, mocking, maligning, and mistreating him. And so when the Bible says that David was a man after his own heart, he certainly takes after his humility then. In Psalm 89, 20, the Bible says, I have found David my servant. With my holy oil have I anointed him. David my servant. Can I tell you to be a servant demands humility. You know why most people aren't servants? Because they are unwilling to humble themselves. Humility demands 
is, is a requirement of God and the word of God. And the truth is, is that many serve, but few are servants. You say, how's that possible? Because we're serving to get something in return. It's not for the sake of serving. Humility is demanded. It's required if we're going to truly be servants. In Acts 13, 22, the Bible says, And when he had removed him, he raised up unto them David to be their king. And again, we're looking back now through history, and the writer of the book of Acts is stating, To whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David the son of Jesse, a man after mine own heart, which shall fulfill all my will. You know, when we speak about humility, we can't help but note David's willingness to recognize biblical authority. On more than one occasion, we know that David had opportunity to rid himself of Saul, who threatened his life over and over again. He was on the run from Saul, the king, for no good reason either. Instead, David, he demonstrated humility, he extended honor, and he exercised restraint in his dealings with the king. David honored God's man. Despite the unprovoked attacks, he still honored him. David committed to God and his word. His commitment, I should say, to God and his word superseded his commitment to self-preservation even. I mean, you and I, obviously, we would have looked at the situation and had justified killing King Saul. Without question, we'd have said, man, it's either him or me. My self-preservation is kicking in. And you know what? None of us in the room would probably... We'd all agree. We'd say, well, you know, I understand why they did it. But David said, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm more committed to God and his word than I am to my own self-preservation. And this level of humility and obedience is rare indeed. In 1 Samuel 26, 9, David is speaking to Abishai. He says, destroy him not. Who's he talking about? He's talking about King Saul. The opportunity has arisen, and now easily King Saul could be killed. And David says, destroy him not, 1 Samuel 26, 9. For who can stretch forth his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? How in the world can we kill this man who God has placed in this position? Is God not big enough to remove him if he chooses? That's what David's saying. So David believed that God could be trusted with his well-being. He believed God could be trusted with his future. Proverbs 13, 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. Boy, taking matters into our own hands is most often an indictment of faithlessness in our lives, isn't it? I mean, literally when we say, I'm going to take the bull by the horns, in essence what we're saying is, Now, we don't trust God enough. See, is God big enough to handle us and our problems, or isn't he? David shouted a resounding, yes, indeed he is. Even though that enemy of mine there is chasing me down, hunting me down, and he wants my life, I'm still willing to trust the God of heaven to handle him, because God placed him there, God can remove him. We've got to be willing to humble ourselves before God and trust him with our every care. And that's a lot easier said than done, isn't it? Yeah. 
I'm just going to give you a quick thought here, and, and we'll be done. I'm just going to move fast. This is really tough because of time. It's rough. But first of all, David was a valiant warrior, a popular psalmist, a skillful musician, a tremendous king, an obedient servant of God. But David was a well-rounded servant of God. Very well-rounded. He wasn't just tough, but he was also tender. He wasn't just brawn, but he was broken. He was all man, this David was. But he was still sensitive, compassionate, and humble. David wore multiple hats, and he wore them well. So here's the deal. Young men, learn to read and write. Learn to read and write. David was the psalmist. He had to learn to write. He had to be a writer. He had to know how to write. Learn to read and write. Good thing to know as a man. Well, you know, the boys just don't like school. I know they don't like school. But the fact is, is that they better, if, if they're going to learn to be well-rounded and they're going to be the servant of God they need to be. They've got to learn to read and write. And by the way, it's not being weak to be creative or even write poetry. You know that you don't have to throw your man card away to write a poem? You know? I wouldn't do that. That's for sissies. That's for women. That's for girls. Okay, well, call David a girl sometime. Get to heaven and say, hey, you big wimp. He'd say, we might be on streets of gold, but that blood will still look red, friend. Actually, it won't be blood, but anyway. <laughs> Got to get scriptural now. It won't be blood. But anyway, <clears throat> it's not displaying weakness to play an instrument or write music. I don't want to play the piano. I hate playing instruments. I'd rather just go out and do something. Man, you better learn to discipline yourself. So you know why most men don't learn to play a piano or an instrument? Because they can't discipline themselves to sit down long enough to do it. It's a matter of discipline. David had to be a very disciplined young man to learn the harp. Man, if we lack something in our world today, it's, it's that element of discipline, self-discipline. We can sit on a stupid computer or watch a television screen and sit there and play our video games all night long, but we can't spend an hour a week practicing our piano. Our parents even investing money in us. Paying somebody 15 or 20 or 25 dollars for 20 or 30 or 40 minutes of playing and practice, and we don't even take the time to honor that. We're so weak, so undisciplined, so selfish. Thank you, preacher. You're a blessing, and every parent in here ought to be thanking me right now. But man, I'm going to tell you something. There's nothing wrong with playing an instrument, there's nothing wrong with writing some music. It's not for girls. For men, obviously. David was a well-rounded one. Hey, listen, it's not admitting weakness to submit to God in obedience. Well, if you, you know, just be your own man. You don't have to do everything God says. Man, listen, it's fun out there. Oh, okay. You know, you can still be a man and a warrior, but have compassion and concern for others. You can still rule but do it with humility and honor. You can still show compassion and concern for others and still be a man. Okay, that's to the young men. Now, young ladies. Find a man who can read and write. 
and isn't ignorant due to laziness. Well, I don't like to study. I hate English. Well, who cares what you hate or what you like or don't like? Learn to discipline yourself to do things you don't like to do. That's being a man. And ladies, you get hooked up with one of those ignoramuses, you got trouble the rest of your days. Now I'm talking about if they're ignorant due to laziness. I'm, and listen, some people just aren't as smart as others, and whether we want to admit it or not, it's true. Well, we're all the same. Oh yeah, go ahead. Look in the mirror sometime. We're not all the same. We're all pretty different. And the truth is, God made us unique and different, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's funny how we're to celebrate our uniqueness now in our world, but then again, to express it and to identify it is to say that you're being something else. This is stupid. It's, it, it, which is it? I'm telling you today that if you're going to look for a young man, ladies, you better look for somebody that's at least giving their best to learn, because if they're too lazy to learn, they probably won't be the provider you need. And they certainly won't do things that are uncomfortable for them when it comes to meeting needs in the lives of the family. Find a man who can read and write and isn't ignorant due to laziness. Seek out a husband who's not afraid to be creative or even write poetry. What's wrong with that? That's pretty good. Seek out a man who has the discipline to practice and perfect his craft. If he's not willing to put forth effort to learn new things, even whether it be education or whether it be other areas of his life. And I'm not talking about he has to go to college. I'm not talking about that. Man, listen, there are people making a lot more money than college graduates today. I'm not talking about that. This isn't just about making money and having a good living. Lord knows we're not about money and we shouldn't be focused on money. However, it doesn't hurt if God gives you the privilege of making it. Why would we just be ignorant on purpose? Why would we be, you know, a lack of creativity on purpose? Why would we be so lazy that we can't get good at a piano or good, at, at least as good as we can get with the talent level God's given us? I listen to some of these young people around here and they play and I'll be frank with you, some of you could be a lot better than you are. You don't work at it. Because I've been watching and I've been listening to your progress and I don't see a lot of it. I can go back to some of you a year ago and you don't play any better hardly than you played a year ago. There's something wrong with that. I don't, it's not that I don't appreciate what you're doing, but I tell you what, you could be doing a lot better and it isn't about what you're doing for me, it's about what are you doing for the Lord. You giving Him your very best? You say, I could be a little better maybe. Well, then why aren't you? Hey, ladies, why would you marry a guy that's not going to give it his very best? Why would you even give him the thought of, uh, even the thought of the uh, day or whatever they call that? Find a man who's submitted to God and obedient to his word. Well, I like a mysterious young man. I like someone that's, you know, spontaneous. I like someone that's got a little bit of you know, huh. you'll like that until you say I do, and he's still like that, and you're like, why don't you bring on the check? Because I don't. I mean, I'm just a little, I'm, I'm bad. Well, bad ain't going to pay the bills. <laughs> it 
Seek out a man who can protect you and your family, but also show compassion and concern for others. And he ought to be willing to lay down his life, and he ought to have a little bit of muscle, and he ought to care whether or not he's able to stick it out in the football game or the basketball game. He ought to be a little bit, he ought to be competitive. Well, it doesn't matter. Everybody's the winner. Go find somebody else, because I'm not wasting my time with you. Man, I want someone that's going to say, I want to be number one. I want to work at this thing. I want to be the best. Where's that drive in these young men today? I don't want my daughter marrying a guy who's willing to settle. Ladies, you shouldn't look for that. I guarantee you David didn't settle. Marry a man who can rule, but rule with humility. You want a man that can rule. It's biblical. But you make sure he has the right spirit and attitude. Because ultimately, he will be your husband. And biblically, he has to be. And you're going to have to submit to that. So don't make a foolish decision and then regret it the rest of your days. Complain about it continually and eventually cry to leave him. Think before you make your decisions. Young men, be the young men you ought to be. Be a man like David, well-rounded. Young ladies, don't accept anything less than a biblical young man. Quit giving them all this, well, I'll change him. You won't change anybody. You better find the man that's well-rounded or as much as possible. Hey, listen, we're not perfect, are we? Listen, guys aren't going to be perfect, but I'll tell you this. Don't excuse all of those areas of weakness when, if indeed there hasn't been put forth every ounce of effort possible. Most of the time, we're where we are because of poor choices or, number two, because we have poor character. So don't dismiss poor character. That's a big difference from somebody you say, well, he's not very smart. I don't care, but does he have character? Because if he does, he'll be the best he can be. He ain't very talented. That's all right. But is he going to give it his best no matter what he does? Because if he does, he'll please God. And guess what? He's going to please you too. But he better be giving it his best. So anyway, there you go. There's the thought. We didn't even get to the line yet. We don't have time. So we're going to skip on that. I just think we'll, we'll leave with that. And you say, that's a good lesson for these young people. That's a good lesson for parents to think about before, when they start measuring those people that they bring home with them. Before you say, yeah, go ahead and date them. Yeah, go ahead and go out with them. Yeah, go ahead and have a, hey, you ought to think about that first. And by the way, dad, mom, let me just encourage you, okay? Make sure that you don't just say things like, yeah, I'm the parent. I have a right to tell them what I think. No, you make sure that it's more than that, that when you tell them, you're not worried about them running off and leaving. You will tell them exactly what they need to hear. You better raise them to not just hear you, but to listen to you. I'm telling you, this idea, well, I, I don't really agree with that guy she's bringing home, but if I would say I didn't agree, then that's going to make her draw closer to him. That's such a cop-out. Anybody ever hear of the term no guts? I'm going to tell you something. You better get some guts as a parent. Your kids better know something. You're going to hear it, 
whether you like it or not. And second, you kids better understand that when mom and dad speak, you ought to listen and listen to what them good. And if they tell you they don't think that that person's right for you right now, you don't go around, well, why not? I don't like that. I don't agree with you. You're just mad because you don't know. No, you just shut your mouth and you say, yes, ma'am, thank you so much that I got parents that care enough to try to spare me a lot of heartache. And I know you don't understand that coming from an old man in your eyes, but I can guarantee you this. You just talk to some of the people in this room and you ask them, how did marriage go for you when you disobeyed your parents? And some of you, parents, some of you in this room that have been in that position need to make sure that some of these teenagers hear your testimony and know that it doesn't pay to play around outside of this book. It sounds almost like preaching time, and it ain't. It's supposed to be teaching time. I got to get out of here. We got a baptism. Let's go ahead and get that started. Let's have every head bowed, every eye closed. Father, we do come to you. And Lord, again, I'm, I'm burdened, Father, as I look around this country, this nation. I look around even our own world here. Lord, we, we are so apathetical about things, even the Word of God at times. We're, we're, not, we're not committed sometimes to the degree we should be, and I'm I'm talking about my own self, Lord. You know my heart. Lord, we've got to be more dedicated and more committed to you and to truth and right. And our young people, they have so much potential. And we've got a tremendous group of young people that come here. But Lord, I don't want to see them drift off into the world. I don't want them to somehow come up with excuses why they don't have to serve or that the church is too hard or too tough or the rules are too difficult to face and deal with. No, the Bible is still the word of God. Help us, Lord, to be committed to you and your word. Raise up some Davids in our midst. And Father, raise up some women and ladies in our church that'll look for Davids and ultimately be the wives they ought to be to those men. God, help us, Father, to do things your way, to not lean on our own understanding. God, we need you. Father, we have tremendous families in our church. But Lord, even the best at times, even though we're doing our very best, we can be swayed, Father, by the world. It's so easy, Father, to lose sight of you, your word, and what's right. We don't want to lose our kids. But Lord, sometimes we've already lost them and we don't even know it. Help us, Lord, to realize that, Father, we just need to do things your way. We'll thank you, we'll praise you as you work in our hearts and lives. In Christ's name, amen. Let's all stand, every head bowed, every eye closed today.